But I just wanted to uh, take an opportunity to remind you that we are almost at the very end of our series on the church. And in just a couple weeks, the missions conference starts. And we've got four great missionaries lined up that have been all over the world preaching the same gospel. The same gospel that started with Peter and James and John and the apostles that they heard from Christ has been passed down to us that was given to the missionaries that they took around the world, that our missionaries continue to take around the world. And towards the, the end of the missions conference, we will collect your faith promise giving. And what we do is we say, this is the amount that I believe God will provide for our missionaries. And so each of us will say, I will personally commit to give however much the Lord puts on your heart that we can continue to support our current missionaries, new missionaries, ultimately for the purpose of the gospel going out, that they will be able to reach people that we cannot reach, that they will continue to spread the gospel to the far ends of the earth. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll look at the Lord's word to us today. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us together, that we can hear and share in the same good news that Christ has come, that he has died on the cross, paying for our sins, that he was resurrected from the grave, that he ascended and is now with you in heaven eternally. Lord, we thank you that there's going to be a day that you send Christ and he returns to redeem the church, to redeem those who have called upon his name and belief. And Lord, we just look forward to that day where we will have no more pain, no more suffering, no more grief, no more tiredness, no more of life's problems because we will be with you in eternity. We thank you, Lord, that until that day that you have promised us to sustain us, that you've given us your spirit to comfort and encourage, to convict and to equip us with gifts that you desire for us to use for your church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are familiar with little babies going from the crawling baby stage to the walking stage, which most people have seen a baby at some point go from laying on the ground to starting to crawl a little bit. There's a progression. The progression generally is the baby knows how to walk, or the baby knows how to crawl, and then they can stand up while holding on to something. So it's like a, a couch or a coffee table. The baby can hold on and then eventually the baby will kind of like take a step, you know, usually called cruising, where they can like, with their hand on something, they can kind of do this motion and they do that for a while. And then they develop this bravery where they look at you and they turn around and one hand is still on the couch and then the leg does this. And they let go and they start to take that step they fall like almost immediately because this is a brand new process. They've never taken those steps and then they crawl back to the couch, pull themselves back up and keep going. They just keep going until one day they let go and they take a step and they're standing there and they've kind of like got this like wobbly baby time and then they take it like kind of like a, like a 1980s like monster movie. They're like, you know, they get that like whole step where the whole body is engaged in these steps but it's a process, right? They go from 
crawling to cruising on the couch to taking little steps to ultimately learning how to walk. And at every stage, they fall down, and then they get back up and they do it again. And they fall down and get back up and do it again. The final stage is generally they're in the middle of the living room, and they fall down, and they can stand up on their own without holding anything. And then they can just start walking everywhere they want. But it's always a progression. It always involves falling and getting back up again. It always involves some failure and some success. When we look at the life of Peter, it's almost identical. Peter is often a petulant child that needs to learn how to walk. He looks at Jesus and says, no, your ideas are not good. I've got my own ideas. And Jesus is like, relax, Peter. Peter goes and he walks out on the water and he has these high points. And then he starts to have low points where he looks around and he sees the wind and the waves, and he starts to realize, I'm out here on my own, and he takes his eyes off Jesus, and Peter starts to sink. He has lots of low points in his life. All throughout Peter's life, though, we see this progression, just like we do with a child who's learning to walk. We see Peter on the shore of Galilee where he's impulsive, and Jesus says, hey, drop your nets. Let's go. Follow me. And the Bible says immediately in Matthew 4, like suddenly, like lightning crashing, Peter just drops his nets and follows Jesus. Peter is often impulsive, and he's learning. He's falling, and he's getting back up. And he's falling and getting back up. And in the middle of Peter's life, we come to Acts 2.14. And in Acts 2.14, Peter is looking at a huge crowd of people probably 10 to 30,000 people. And Peter stands before those people, no longer the impulsive man that he was, no longer just saying immediately what comes to his mind, often wrong, but Peter is having this progression. His life is moving towards spiritual maturity. And he stands before these tens of thousands of people, and he says, fellow Jews and all of you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. And Peter preaches this message of hope, of Jesus, of repentance, of sin, and he tells them all of it. And by the end of Peter's preaching, it says that 3,000 people heard, repented, they believed, and they were baptized. And yet, just a couple years before, Peter was lying on the ground, crawling, not even knowing how to walk. And we see this middle point in his life, where now he's up and he's taking steps. Peter's journey to spiritual maturity continues. And in the book of Acts, Peter becomes the leader of the church. He becomes a missionary. He's persecuted, and he writes two letters, the, the two epistles of Peter, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, which show a very different person than the man we see on the shore of Galilee. A totally different person who is encouraging and offering some admonition to stay the course. You know where you've come from, and here's where we're going. The life of Peter 
is the perfect case study of what it means to walk in spiritual maturity. Like a baby that's learning to walk, we can just chronicle Peter's life as he is walking toward spiritual maturity. And that's what we want to look at today is steps toward spiritual maturity. You'll notice your handout does not have numbers, it has checkboxes. Those checkboxes are purposeful. As we go through some of these, if you have a pen, check the box as you feel like, like a child. You know, I've mastered this part. I can, I can take one step from the couch. I have salvation. Check the box. I have evangelized. I have witnessed. I have shared the good news. We'll check that box when we get there. And when there's a box that you don't check, that's an opportunity for you to say, okay, this is somewhere that I need practice, that I need to understand what the Lord says about this, that I need to commit to working on this as part of my personal journey to spiritual maturity. And the first one I want to talk about is salvation. You know, salvation is like being a newborn baby. There's no crawling. There's no real expectation of anything else besides this is a baby. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets a man named Nicodemus, and Jesus tells him, hey, you got to be born again. You have to have a new life. And Nicodemus is understandably confused because how do I, get, how do, I do that? And Jesus tells him, it's a whole starting over. Who you were is replaced by who Christ is. So you had nothing except death and sin in your life, and you need to be a new creation. You need to be saved from your sin. You have sin in your life, which is anything that you think or say or do that breaks God's law. Anything that we think, anything that we say, or anything that we do that breaks God's law. God's got lots of laws, and they're all meant for our good, to teach us how to live. And he says, when you break them, you owe a penalty. The penalty for sin is death. And Jesus came to earth and offered a way that you don't have to pay for that death. He offered a way that we can be saved. And that's called salvation. Salvation is God offering, through Christ, a way for us to be saved. And that's what Jesus is telling this man, Nicodemus. It's like being born again. You have a whole new life. And then Jesus in Matthew 3, 14 says to Nicodemus, who understands and is an Israelite, so he knows their history, and he says, you remember when Moses was in the wilderness? He says there were snakes all over camp, and the snakes were biting and killing people. So God told Moses, put a snake up on top of a big pole, and put it out there, and anytime somebody looked at the snake, they would not die from their snake bite. And so Moses put a snake on the end of a pole, and the people would get bit by a snake, they'd get out of their tent, and they'd go and they'd look at the pole, and they would no longer die from their snake bite. Jesus says, just as the snake was lifted up, the snake provided healing, the snake provided life to those who were dead, in the same way, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, must be lifted up. He will be lifted up on the cross that all who look, that all who believe in him, will have salvation. They'll be saved 
from the snake bite of sin. So if you feel like Nicodemus, I don't know what that means. I don't think I've ever been saved. I don't think I can check that box. I mean, you might feel compelled because your neighbors are right there, and so you're like, okay, I'm going to check it. But if you're in your mind and in your heart like, I don't think I should check this box, there's an opportunity for you to say, have I looked to Jesus? Have I looked to Jesus for the payment of my sins? Have I looked to him in hope and in belief that God has sent one way that we might be saved? And that's through Jesus's death and burial and resurrection. So that is salvation. There's a, a story, and it's interesting, it was, it was told in a few different ancient cultures. A little boy is walking along a dirt road, and he sees a sparrow that has died on the ground. The sparrow is laying on its back like a cartoon with its feet straight up in the air, and the boy walks over, and he looks at the sparrow, and the sparrow opens its eyes. And the boy looks at him, and he says, what are you doing? And the sparrow says, well, I'm holding up the sky. So the boy's putting it together like he's laying on his back with his feet up, holding up the sky. And the boy says, not with those scrawny legs, you're not. And the sparrow says, well, I'm doing everything I can. It's a metaphor for the futility of trying to hold up the sky. See, when we don't look to Christ for salvation, we're trying to hold up the sky. The sky is indeed falling, but your scrawny legs can't hold it up. You can't hold up the sky and keep it from falling. If we don't look to Christ, we are bitten by sin, and we receive the punishment of our sin, which is ultimately death. There's one way to be saved, and that's through Christ alone. Now, once you've moved from being a newborn baby and having salvation— then you begin to learn to crawl. So learning to crawl is the next step in spiritual maturity, and that would be attendance. Being here on Sunday, being with the people of God, is a very good first step toward spiritual maturity. In Hebrews it says, Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. So meeting together, being with people, not as the author of Hebrews said, neglecting being together, but choosing to be together with God's people is not only commanded by God. To be the church, as we've talked about, was made possible by the Holy Spirit to meet together fulfills the Great Commission. It's required for spiritual health, and it's a privilege of God's people. The author of Hebrews says, as you see the day approaching. In the New Testament, the idea of some future day is spoken about numerous times. Peter calls it the end of all things. James calls it the Lord's coming. And there's a day, the Bible says, in which Jesus will return for his church. In the very beginning of Acts, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus ascend to heaven. And an angel says, what are you looking at? 
They said, we're, we're looking for Jesus. He was here, now he's not. And they said, the angel says, don't worry, he'll come back in the same way he just left. One day, Jesus will return for his church. And the people around you are eternal people. You are an eternal person. And for those of us who have faith in Christ, these are your eternal people. You'll be with them for eternity. So get to know them now so it won't be awkward when you get there. Like, we went to church together for like 10 years. I do not remember your name. You know, it's like, so get to know your eternal family now, and then we'll join with millions and millions of people that have been on all parts of the world and all parts of time, and we'll join together for eternity to sing the praises of God. So starting now with attendance, uh, James says that, that the Lord is coming. It's certain. Peter says it. Paul says it. There's no doubt in the, in the men who walked with Jesus that one day Jesus will return. So my challenge to you, and that is where the rubber meets the road, is be willing to forego activities that are planned for Sunday morning. Be willing to say church is more important than something else. Be willing to say, I can't do it on that day or that time because I'm with my people. It's a hard thing to do, but it's one step towards spiritual maturity. All right, the third one towards spiritual maturity is spiritual disciplines. And I brought the best book on spiritual disciplines. It's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. I took some of that, some of these next few points directly from the book. It's an excellent book. I would highly recommend it. It has a lot of depth to it besides what we'll be able to cover. Um, and I'm going to have to skip a couple of these. But if you want a copy of the book and you don't have the 15 bucks, make a note on your communication card, drop it in the back, and put your name on it so we know. And we'll buy you a copy of it. Okay, so if you don't have it or you want it, just put a note in the box and we'll get you a copy of it so you can have it. It's worth reading and it's an excellent resource on spiritual disciplines. The first spiritual discipline is Bible reading. And by far the most important spiritual discipline is Bible reading. It's how we know God. It answers those questions. Who is God? How do I know who God is? How do I obey God? What does God expect of me? What is God's will for my life? Like when you're a teenager, you're like, what, is, what am I supposed to do? All of those answers are found in the Bible. Everything from who am I supposed to be, how am I supposed to live, what does God expect of me, are found in the Bible. And if you read your Bible, you know who God is. So the very first and most important spiritual discipline is to read your Bible. Oh, I was, uh, that's what I was trying to remember. Uh, Don Whitney was one of my professors in seminary, and he told a story of him and three other men had gone to Africa, and he said we were in a very primitive church, which we would not even consider a church. We would just consider a dozen people sitting under a tree, and he said they had no Bibles, 
They had no formal anything. And he said the one guy who was their pastor, which again was a very loose term, knew six Bible stories. And he said every six weeks he would repeat the Bible story because that's all they knew. And he said, we got there and we heard one of his Bible stories, which wasn't even accurate, but that's all they knew. And he said, it's easy for us to look at them and to be very forgiving. Like, hey, you don't even know. How are you supposed to know? You don't own a Bible. The nearest Christian missionary is 100 miles away by foot, and they don't have a lot of interaction with people that know the Bible. So they're doing what they can to obey what they know. We don't really have an excuse. You know, it's said that the, the greatest dust storm in history would happen if all of the unfaithful Christians opened their dusty Bibles at the same time. How do we know God if we don't actually read his words to us? So we look at the African people and say, man, of course they don't know God as well as we do. They don't have the same opportunity. And then our tendency is to walk away and do something that's important to us while neglecting what God said is the most important thing. So to know God, we have to know his word and we have to be willing to read his word. In Ezekiel chapter 33, God is saying that the people are excited to come. They're excited to hear the word of God. But then in verse 31, it says, Their mouths go on passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest profit. They come and they're excited. They say they're excited, but then they just go and do their own thing. So we have to know God. We have to be able to say, I know God because I read his word. I read his word, and that helps me to know God. So Bible reading is the first and foremost way that we can discipline ourselves to know God, to be more like Christ, and to encourage others to do the same. All right, and the second one is prayer. And if you can imagine this, you're sitting at home, and Jesus comes, and he knocks on your front door, and he says to you, hey, now, whenever you pray... And then he gives you some instruction. And he goes on, he says, when you pray, and he gives you some more instruction, when you pray, and he gives you some more instruction, and he says, this is how you ought to pray. And four times he's assuming that you are a praying person, and he's trying to help you know how to pray. That's Matthew 6, verses 5, 6, 7, and 9. Jesus is literally saying, Whenever you pray, when you pray, when you pray, here's how you pray. Because he expects that his disciples will be praying people. He modeled what it looks like to pray, and he expects us to do the same. When we choose not to pray, we are saying, I don't need to pray because I've got this. I'm good right now. I don't need God for anything because I can do it. And honestly, that's our tendency, right? Especially in the little things. Like, we'll partner together with God. I'll do the easy stuff. And when I need you, I'll call you and say, I need you to come do the big stuff. Like, I'm in this really big mess. I need you to come and fix it. The little mess I can figure out. The big stuff I need help with. 
But we're to go to God in everything, with everything, for everything, to be in a continual and constant state of prayer with God saying, I need you every minute of every hour of every day. When we pray, we're saying, I trust you to handle all things and not myself to handle anything. And you know yourself well enough. I know myself well enough. It's much better for me to trust God to handle all things than to trust myself to handle anything. I think you would probably say the same. Uh, We're going to skip worship. We'll hit stewardship. Stewardship is recognizing that God already owns everything and has given you something to manage, given you something to steward. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things, you, me, the chairs, the carpet. God created all things, and he says, all right, hey, I want you to have this part to manage. I want you to manage these hours that I'm giving you, this money that I'm giving you, these relationships that I'm giving you, this influence that I'm giving you. This grief and sorrow, these losses that you've had in your life. And all things that God gives us are things that we are to steward well. You remember at the end of Matthew, Jesus tells a parable of of a master, and the master has to go away, and he calls three of his servants to him, and he gives one of them five talents, which imagine like 5,000 bucks. And he's like, I want to be gone for a long time. Take this money and invest it. He gives the second guy two talents. He gives the other guy one talent. And he goes away and he comes back, and the guy that he had given five to had doubled it and he has ten. The guy that he had given two doubled it and he has four. And Jesus says, the master tells both of them, well done. I entrusted you with this much. You're faithful. Here's more. I can, I can trust you to keep doing what you've been doing. You stewarded what I had given you. The guy that had been given one took it and buried it. And he told the master, he's like, hey, I, I know you're a pretty exacting guy. Like, I was not going to take the chance of investing it and then losing it. So I just buried it, and here you go. It's not a bad idea. Because you take it and you say, at least I didn't lose anything. I didn't lose what you gave me. But Jesus says, the master says to him, you wicked and unfaithful servant. See, when God gives us things to steward, he doesn't expect us to bury them. He expects us to use them that we might encourage one another, that we might promote and build his kingdom that we might share what God has given with the people of his church. Time, talents, abilities, occupation, like I said, your influence. And there are people that only you can reach. There are people that will never come to church. I don't know them, but they're your neighbors. They're your coworkers, and they're your cousins. And those are relationships that God has given you influence in, that not everybody has influence in. So those are types of things that you are called to steward. And the reason that we want to steward those things well is given by Paul in Romans chapter 14. 
Paul says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Just like the master came back, what happened to the money I gave you? Give me the receipts. Show me what you did. Show me the statements of what happened with what I gave you. And we'll be responsible. So my challenge to you is this in two different ways. Number one is, what do you steward well? And the second thing is, what do you not steward well? So recognizing where you do well and recognizing where you need to grow. Because you may do great with your money and bad with your time. Or you may be a great witness to the people at your work, but not to your family. So recognizing where you can grow in terms of spiritual disciplines towards spiritual maturity. And let's drop down to journaling. We'll skip fasting and silence. And like I said, if, you, if these spiritual disciplines interest you, there's so much more in Whitney's book. I really can't recommend it enough. It's an excellent, excellent resource. Uh, the next one, though, is journaling, which is just writing down what's important to you. It doesn't have to have any kind of direction. You're just writing down what's important to you. I keep two journals. Number one is a small book that I, I mainly write notes and prayer requests, and it's just kind of simple daily things. And the other one is more like if you think back to when you were in eighth grade. And when I say journal and you think eighth grade, you think like a diary. And you're like, I'm not keeping a diary anymore. And I'm like, eighth grade you would disagree. Because I know eighth grade you is like, where's my little lock? I could like put that little lock on it, you know, because like now all your eighth grade thoughts and who you loved in eighth grade is now protected because that lock that could just be, you know, bent with eighth grade force, right? Like I know you guys had those locks. And so you don't have to have a lock anymore, but having that type of journal where you're just writing down what I feel. How does this make me feel? The benefit to journaling in that way is you can look back on how you were feeling and see how God was working in those things. The Israelites didn't journal, but they did set up 12 stones. And those stones were memories and reminders for them to tell their kids, hey, there was a day that we were in a lot of trouble. There were a bunch of Egyptians that were coming to kill us. And we made it through because God protected us. So he set up these stones as a reminder. If you've ever read the Psalms, you've read all of King David's journal. I fear for my life because there are wicked men who are coming to kill me. Yet I know you will protect me, David says to God. And still I'm kind of scared that they're going to come and kill me. Right? That's just his feelings. He's scared because there's a genuine threat. And he writes it down. And he sees how God protects him. So when I journal, I usually write it down. And then I go back and read it. And... Try to understand, like, is this my actual feeling right now? What is God doing? What can God do? And put a date on it. I don't journal every day, probably once or twice a month. 
And then I like to look back on them and see where God has taken me. So if you've never journaled before, my challenge to you is to do it two times. One, when you are feeling really good, everything is great, and one time the opposite, where you're feeling really bad and nothing is great, okay? You're holding up the sky all by yourself and the sky is falling. It'll give you two different perspectives on how you feel at two different times, okay? So I would say that of all of the spiritual disciplines, journaling is probably the least expressly commanded in the Bible, but it's one that I've personally found the greatest help to me outside of the obvious ones like reading your Bible and prayer and worship and the ones that are directly commanded by God. So if you've never done it, okay, if you haven't done it since eighth grade, give journaling a try. Okay, so as you continue in your journey towards spiritual maturity, the next one is walking. Okay, you've, you've been at the edge of the couch, and now it's time to take steps away from the couch in which you fall down and you do it wrong, and you fail, and you fail. We call that evangelism. Okay, you, you walk away and you fail because you tell somebody, hey, this is what God has done in my life. That's evangelism, right? To tell people what God has done in your life, to proclaim the good news that I've been saved from my sins. And when you first do it, it's pretty rough. Like, just being honest, like, you don't know what to say, and then you end up saying things, and sometimes that person looks at you, they're like, I don't even know what you're trying to tell me, but I'm very confused. And then you're the baby on the ground, and you're like, I gotta get back up, and I gotta try it again. And that's evangelism. It's okay to do it wrong. It's okay to try and try again, and to keep getting it wrong. Because it's not about you. Evangelism is not about you at all. It's about the message. Okay? You are simply the messenger delivering God's message. And if you're not great at it, that's okay. You'll get better at it the more you do it. In the late 1800s, a 16-year-old boy had made a commitment to visit every church in London. And he was going to visit every church because he felt spiritually empty. He felt like he wasn't sure what the truth was. He wasn't sure who God was. And so he was on his personal journey of spiritual understanding. So every church in London, he had made a list. So Sunday, he wakes up, looks at the list, goes outside, and there's a brutal snowstorm. So he's walking down an alley, trying to stay out of the snow, realizing he's never going to make it to the church that he intends to make it to that Sunday. So he sees a church and just ducks in the back door. He goes, he sits down, and there's a dozen people in the church. He's one of now 12, 15 people in the church. So they sit there and they wait, and it turns out the pastor was also caught in the snowstorm and could not make it to the church. So some guy, he was either a tailor or a shoemaker, stands up and delivers one of the worst sermons. 
out of Isaiah 45, 22, he says, look to me and be saved. And he says, that's what Jesus says. Look, if you have eyes, then you're able to look. And to me is Jesus. So if you have eyes, then look at Jesus, and then you'll be saved. And the young man said that he went on for about 10 minutes, kind of just regurgitating that same idea until he finally just realized he had nothing else to say. And so of the 12 people there, he looked and pointed at the 16-year-old who had just got in, and he said, you look miserable. So he went round and round about five words for 10 minutes and then started to attack the audience. And he said, you look miserable. If you don't obey my text, you will always be miserable. In life and in death, you will forever be miserable. But if you obey my text, if you look to Jesus, you'll be saved. The young man walked out, and he, let me read it. He says, there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that very moment and sang with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. The worst sermon delivered by a guy who was much better at making shoes or clothes than he was preaching, and then attacking who came to be known as Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon was converted that moment because of that guy's horrible sermon. It's not about you. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. The Word of God is what's powerful. The Spirit of Christ is what has been given to us, and we have God's Holy Spirit to quicken the people to salvation. We're just here to obey. We're just here to say, I will do what God has called me to do. But it's not about us. You don't need the right words. You just need the right heart that says, I am willing. That was 16-year-old Spurgeon. By the time he was 20, he had already preached 200 sermons. Over his life, he is estimated to have preached to over 10 million people. He is still, to this day, the most printed preacher of all time. Tens of thousands of sermons. Millions of people. Because one unnamed guy sat with a dozen other people in church at a snowstorm, and they looked around. Who's going to go up and where's, where, uh, where's the pastor? Like, what are we going to do? The guy's like, well, I read the, something this morning. I don't remember where it is. And the guy just went up and was like, this is what God says. And that's what God used. One willing man. In our church, there was a willing man about four years ago. And this man was getting his truck worked on, and he sat in a mechanic shop. And he talked to somebody. 
just somebody that was sitting there. He shared the good news, told him what it means to be a Christian. The man said, I, I believe you, I'm a Christian. Well, four years later, that man he had talked to was now having a crisis. His life was a mess, and he came and he sat the very back, as close to the door as he could. So I went and talked to him on a Sunday morning, and he sat there, and I asked too many questions, and I got too many answers, and he told me how his life was a mess. And so I offered to meet with him, and he came, and we met a few different times. And then the man in our church saw him one night. He said, I know that guy. I said, no, you don't. He only came one time to church. He's like, no, I do know that guy. And I was like, you really don't. He did know that guy. It was the guy that he had talked to four years ago when he was getting his truck worked on. And he just encouraged the guy. And then he's having a crisis, and his life is a mess. And he remembers that conversation four years ago that our church member said, this is where I go to church, and this is who I am. And so four years later, he comes during a time of crisis. Neither one of them remember what they said. He just remembered that there was a man who was faithful to share the good news. And when he had a crisis, he knew where to go. Because it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. Evangelism is learning to tell what God has done in your life. And it's okay if it's hard. It's okay if you say the wrong thing. It's okay if someone's like, well, why did Jesus preach to the dead? And you're like, what? That's what the Bible says, that Jesus went and preached to the dead. Tell me why. Like, that never happens. Like, nobody's, like, ever trying to, like, stump you. So just tell them. And if they're, like, that kind of person, be like, I don't know. What do you think? You're like, it's okay. It's, like, it, it's not going to happen, and it's okay if you don't have all the right answers. Evangelism is being obedient to tell of what God has done in our life. All right, and then after that, then we get more involved with participation. And that's after you've learned to walk. Now you're learning to run. This is beyond Sunday. This is getting involved in community groups and all for the family and Wednesday nights. And you're meeting with people and you're trying to walk towards spiritual maturity, recognizing that God has given his church, his people, to one another. That other people have spiritual gifts that... God has given to them for your benefit and vice versa. And so we are meeting together in smaller groups. Okay, this is an area that your needs are known, that your needs can be met, that people know when you're struggling. They know how to pray for you. They know what's going on in your life. They follow up and they ask, how's it going? They continue to give encouragement when you're struggling with sin. And in the same way, you know about their needs you're able to talk to them and say, hey, how's it going? Last week you said that this was a problem. Have you been faithful to continue reading? Are you faithful to pray about it? Be, being more participatory, having more close relationships, takes somebody from being a, a regular, saved Christian to being someone who is committed and devoted to the things of God. Being willing to give more than an hour and a half on Sunday, is where that starts to separate walking from running. And then the next one, to receive discipleship. You've learned to walk. You've learned to run. 
Discipleship is like hiring a coach and saying, I need to be trained how to run. The discipler and the disciplee, the person being discipled, is a one-on-one -on -one relationship that the person who has more experience is saying, I'm going to teach you how to run this race. I'm going to teach you what it means to be a Christian. Paul writes to both Timothy and Titus, the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy and the letter of Titus. It's just three letters of discipleship. Paul knows them personally. He says to, to Timothy, hey, don't let other people look down on you because you're younger than they are. He knew Timothy. He knew his age. He knew what the church was doing, or he knew that Timothy was insecure and felt that way. Paul tells him, hey, it's okay. God has put you here. Bring around other elders. Get other people that can be there and support you and support the church. Timothy's sick, and so Paul tells him, hey, here's an idea that you can try to calm your stomach. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It's having a coach, having somebody that can be there, who's been there before, that can point you in the right direction. And the next one is service. Service is like actually running the race. Okay, this is the longest part of our Christian life, is to continue to be in service to one another. The difference between athletes and Christians is athletes peak in their mid to late 20s. Right? They're the fastest, the strongest, the best, generally in their mid to late 20s. Christians should peak toward the end of their life. They've grown closer to the Lord. They've learned more about who Jesus is and how to follow him. And so their life and their Christian walk continues to get better and better and better as they continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of who Christ is. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Our service to one another is a gift of God that we use to serve and to love and to build the church. Whether it's serving behind the scenes, serving in the nursery, serving on Sunday, serving in a community group, just serving somebody by texting them and calling them and checking on them. We do that, that we might serve one another and be good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. There's a, I've, I've told you this before, but probably 10 years ago now, uh, I, uh, he's a, a man now, but I'm trying to think how old. He's probably f 15 years younger than I am. He texted me and said, hey, the Lord brought you to my mind today, and I just wanted to let you know I'm praying for you. That was like 10 or more years ago. And I remember that, and that has changed my life. He discipled me in a way of encouraging others. And I do that every time I think about somebody, pray for them, text them. Hey, praying for you today, is there anything specific I should be praying for? It's just a way that we can serve one another by showing that we care for one another. All right, and the next one is to provide discipleship. Providing discipleship is now you being the coach and finding someone else who is running the race and saying, let me teach you what I know. To coach someone, to disciple someone, 
All you have to be is a little bit farther along than they are. It's like being a first-year teacher at a school. You don't actually know all the material. You just know today's material, and you fake it to the kids. Like, if you've ever been a teacher, you know that's what you're doing the first year because you're, like, trying to survive today. Today, this is what we're doing. I'm going to learn tomorrow, tomorrow, but you guys are going to learn today, and I'm going to act like I already know tomorrow. And that's okay. I know what I can see in your life. I know how to help you run better, to coach someone else. So if you've been a Christian for a number of years, five, ten years, you are farther along in your Christian journey towards spiritual maturity than someone else. So find someone who is faithful, who is available, and who is teachable. F-A-T, faithful, available, and teachable. And sit with that person. And talk to that person. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them what they're reading. Ask them how they came to know the Lord. And encourage them as a coach would to a runner. They'll tell you things that you can identify as unbiblical ways of thinking. Like, what does the Bible say about what you just said? You just told me that you're, you're anxious about everything. What does the Bible say about being anxious? Let's Google it and let's open our Bibles and look together. That's discipleship. Encouraging someone who is a younger or less mature believer than you are. So someone who is providing discipleship is already living the life, they're already walking the walk, and now they're looking at someone else and saying, let me teach you what God has already taught me. It's Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. So you're saying to that person, let's do what the Lord is calling us both to do. All right, number nine, technically, yours is a, an empty box, but number nine is generational legacy. This is looking at the end and finishing the race well. What does it mean to finish the race well? What will people say at your funeral? What will we, as your people, say at your funeral? Your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, what will not be said at your funeral? You know, if people are at your funeral and they're like, well, he was alive, and now he is not. That's really the best I got to say about him. You're like, we want to be able to leave a legacy where people look back and they said, Man, a, a truly God-honoring woman has gone to be with him. A truly God-honoring man has gone to be with him. We are going to miss that person because they played a role in my life, because they played a role in the church. How are we going to replace the prayer of that person? How are we going to replace the service and the love for one another that that person had? The book of Titus in chapter 2, Titus teaches older men, to teach younger men, older women, teach younger women, to younger men. And it's this generational passing down of the knowledge, the wisdom that God has given. And there's never a point in life where this should end. Christians don't retire from being Christians. You can retire from your work, you can retire from a hobby, 
but you shouldn't ever retire from being a Christian. God does not call you to now stop following Jesus. What you do may change. There's lots of things that can change about what you do, but you never stop being a Christian. You never retire from that. You're constantly looking toward the end, running the race, discipling others, and thinking about what God has for you for however many days and years that you have left. And the final one is to repeat. We're going to look more next week at our final week on the church, and it's the church on repeat. As you walk towards spiritual maturity, you've discipled someone else, and it's taking the torch, taking the baton, and giving it, and saying, now you go and take this and entrust this to someone who will take it and entrust it to someone else. Take this good news that God has given me, that I've given to you, and go and give it to someone else. Discipleship is a constant passing down of what God has given to us and entrusted us with. You know, there are some animals that, especially in Africa on the, on the plains, that they will literally, like, drop out of the womb, and in 20 minutes, they are up and running 30 miles an hour. There's also a lion that's running 40 miles an hour, so, like, there's not a lot of time to get up and start running. Like, they skip all of these steps of crawling and cruising and, like, this one kind of strange step away from a couch. Like, they just get up and they start running. But we're not like that. You know, we're at the top of the food chain, so we don't have to get up and start running right away. Our journey toward walking and toward being mature is a much slower one. Our Christian life and our Christian journey towards spiritual maturity should consist of consistent steps. If you find somewhere on the list that you're saying, and I'm stuck here, that's a problem. That's a problem. Our life should be consistently growing more and more to be like Christ. So how can you take those steps? Peter was a good example of that. As he preached, hit the, the middle of his life, the middle of his spiritual journey, he stands up, he's no longer impulsive, he's no longer just the man who does and says what comes to his mind, but he does and says what Christ would do. He says, this is how Jesus taught. This is what Jesus showed us is the way to be saved. And then his focus started to turn towards building the church and discipling the church and raising up other men who they would send out, raising up a church that would go and build itself and raise up again and send out. And that process would continue to be repeated. But there was a journey for Peter. There was a journey of missteps, journey of mistakes, a journey of trying and failing. And there will be for you. There always is for me. But our goal with spiritual maturity is that we are continuing to take steps that we will become more like Christ in everything we do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us throughout your word both examples and warnings of how a Christian who follows and loves Christ is to be. We pray that you would continue to 
draw us and make us like you, that, uh, that our church would be reflective of Christ who loved and who died for it, that we would spare no expense for one another, that we would commit to walking faithfully with you and in the love that Christ has for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.